So uh, if you don't know me, my name is Ryan Wampler. I see a lot of familiar faces and some new faces out here. Uh, I worked with Veritas for, for several years, and uh, now I work with uh, the 20-somethings at the Crossing, which is kind of like your, the post-undergrad uh, folks there. Uh, so uh, I, I feel privileged that the Veritas staff asked me to come back and be able to speak with you tonight. Um, so uh, we'll just go ahead and get into it. One of the things I wanted to talk about is some of the things that I hear people say and talk about today, which is I hear phrases like this, all connect with God is my Bible and me, or I connect with God more than, more out in nature than I do in a church, or I'm not into organized religion, I'm more into spirituality. These are the kind of comments that when the topic of religion comes up in our day and age, that these are the comments that that fill the conversation. But where did these ideas come from? This is not the way that people have talked for a long time about church and the Bible and spirituality. And and so I I came up with a few sources that I find, that I think inspire. This is the name that's been the common way to talk about it. One is Henry David Thoreau, right? This is the name that's probably echoing in the back of your mind. Oh, my gosh, I think I remember English in high school when I had to read Walden. Uh, Well, that was a book uh, that you either had to read in your high school English class or or maybe were supposed to read before you read the Cliff Notes. Uh, But it has become the standard reading. You know, Thoreau, what he does is he goes to a pond, Walden Pond, and he goes out there to rationally think through what is the most logical way to live. And so his idea, his approach to spirituality is to go out and think by himself, to go out into nature. He liked spiritual self. Thoreau did not like organized religion. He liked spirituality. He did not like the body even. He liked the soul. And not only that, but he, uh, he even considered companionship relationships with other human beings, a waste of time. It says something, right? Uh, you know, charity, you know, being kind to other people in need, he said, did not agree with his constitution. So I don't know how that messed him up, but, you know, somehow it messed him up. Uh, his spirituality, left unchecked by organized religion, might have sounded inspiring when you re- flourish. Actually allowed some of his narcissistic and prideful traits to flourish and left unchecked. Another successor of Thoreau is a guy by the name of John Muir. Now, he left organized religion for entirely different reasons. You see, his father was a pastor and was a strict parent. He made his son memorize verses and hymns, or else he would be whipped. Uh, He forced his children to work and do chores around the house while he sat inside and wrote sermons. He he forbid his kids from allowing them to read novels or poetry. He could even be cruel to animals, even all of this mystery death. It's possible, I guess, so he did it. Uh, And all of this mistreatment that John Muir experienced from his pastor slash father, right? That made rejecting organized religion quite easy, right? Because he found instead the beauty and joy of God while exploring Yosemite Valley in California, much more than he did in his father's 
church. And for John Muir, nature became the greater authority in his life than the Bible did. And partly his distaste from organized religion was what we have done. Christians being hypocritical. Christians uh, not living with what people. His story, Chris McCandless is probably a more contemporary example. His story uh, is in the book and the movie Into the Wild. This might be a little bit dated, but perhaps you've seen the movie or read the book. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's powerful. Uh, but he's another inspiration uh, for this kind of approach to spirituality, of going by yourself out into nature to connect with God. His father was also, like John Muir's, religiously oppressive and abusive. Chris abandoned his family to go live up in the wild in Alaska. That was what his goal is. And so along the way, he makes several connections on his journey up to Alaska where it seems like he has a, a start at a new community, but he trumps any sort of Alaska. This drive to be up in Alaska in the wild on his own trumps any sort of tie that he begins to build at community along the way. And Chris McCain's story is tragic because he dies up in Alaska living in the wilderness. But he writes in his journal before he dies, he writes, happiness only real when shared. Interesting. But he inspired so many people that people go up to the bus, abandoned bus that he died in. People go up to have a spiritual pilgrimage, their own spiritual pilgrimage to the place where he died. Some have even died themselves. Stories have shaped of going up to Alaska to visit these places. So these stories have shaped They've inspired a version of our American spirituality, emphasizing the individual, emphasizing going out in nature, emphasizing a distaste for organized religion with its hypocrisy and abuse within churches. See, organized religion is an easy target to hate. So, I mean, who wants to say, I love organized religion? Yes, it sounds great. I want to be a part of organized religion. See, it doesn't quite stir the heart. It doesn't pull the heartstrings. And so I'm not going to try to talk you in tonight into joining organized religion. If, if by that we mean, or even a mechanical, meaningless ritual, systems of religious abuse, or even a mechanical approach to our relationship with God. And perhaps that's what some of you have experienced up to this point in terms of your religious life. And so let me begin by just apologizing on behalf of Christians. We are sorry that Christians have abused their positions of authority. We're sorry that we have made faith something boring and meaningless. So the problem, though, is not in the faith. And the problem is, is not necessarily in community. It's that we've experienced the wrong community. Be our own, you know, because if we go off and just experience our own individual relationship with God, be our own authorities of what is good and right, well, we're setting one set of problems for another. See, because if we answer the problem, I don't like organized religion, I don't want to be a part of that, is the question we have to ask ourselves, is disorganized religion better? Is that what we want to be a part of, disorganized religion? And see, here's the, the, the truth that I want to hit at tonight, which is this, is that the Christian life is not one that's meant to be lived alone. See, as you guys have been working your way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, now, tonight, we're coming to the fourth chapter, and this chapter represents the turning point in the book. 
see in the, our sense of who we are. You've been exploring what believing in Christ, how that changes our sense of who we are, our identity, how we think about ourselves. And that's what Paul was unpacking in those first three chapters. And now in these last three chapters, Paul is getting ready to begin to unpack how that should affect how we practically live out our lives on an everyday basis. And he begins in chapter 4 saying it changes the way that we relate to other people, the way that we live in community, because he says we are not meant to live alone. Because when we come to Christ, we're not just joined to Christ, we're joined to a whole community of people. We see that in verses 4 to 6 when it says, there is one body, one faith, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, there is one body. See, we're joined into a body, one body. Not many bodies, not a bunch of bodies. There's one body when we come to Christ, and we're joined into it. We're united with all others who are living with the same Lord, with the same mission and purpose in this world with the same hope that lies beyond this world. We're united to all these people. And the point here isn't just to say that we need friends and community. Well, it's good to have friends, but that's not the point here. And these aren't just ideals saying, well, it's good to have friends, so work to, to build friendships. It's good to have community, so work to build community. That's not what he's saying here. And these aren't just means to our own personal ends to say, well, I, how am I going to grow? How am I going to be benefited personally? I need to build friends to, to make me feel good about myself. I need to have community to make me feel good. That's not what's being addressed here. Because what, it's not just an ideal. It's not just a means to an end for our own personal gain. But this is a spiritual reality that Paul is talking about. He's saying we have been joined. We don't need to create community. We come to Christ. Community with others into one body if we have come to Christ. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, says it much better than I just did. He says it this way. He says, because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. See, what Bonhoeffer is saying here is he's saying the reality is, is this is a spiritual reality. That's what community is. When we come to people in Christ, experience, when we, we, that is a spiritual reality that we experience when we, we're not going out to build community, we're going in to experience the community that we already have in Christ. That's what he is saying. See, when we separate ourselves from the body, from the community of Christians, from church, we're separating ourselves from the reality of who we are as individuals who've been put into relationship with other Christians by Christ. We are isolating ourselves from the gifts of God that, that he wants to give us through community. In uh, 1977, there was this guy named Kevin Ball. I think that's how you say it. I'm not 100%. Ball set up his own kingdom that he called Melosia, I think is how you say it. I'm not 100% sure. It's just outside of Dayton, Nevada. Now, that might be surprising. So this is a kingdom he set up in the United States. So his land is in America, and it's unrecognized by every other country. So it, 
he's not living in reality, right? He's missing out as well on the benefits of being a U.S. citizen. He can't get a passport. He can't take advantage of the public education system. He can't use American utilities. So he's robbing himself of the blessings of being an American citizen so he can have his own little kingdom that's not even real, right? It's not even a real thing. Unity that God has us in. This is what we do when we try to live individually and not a part of the community that God has us in. See, God has joined us to other Christians. We are part of a historical community. We're united with those who are in Christ from biblical times and the early church all the way to those who will come to believe after us. We're part of an interracial church with people from every nation, every language, every socioeconomic group, every racial group in the world. These are the people that we share a common mission, a common purpose, a common authority with. These are the people Christ is working in just like he's working in us. These are the people that we are going to live forever with. And see, because Jesus has joined us to these other people, we need to work to experience that community that we already have in them. See, it's not just a reality, poof, we automatically become best friends with uh, somebody because they're a Christian. This is something that needs to be cultivated. We need to work to experience this unity. And that's what Paul says in verses 1 to 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience in the bond of peace, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, what Paul says there, particularly in verse 3 there, is that we need to maintain the unity that the Spirit is working among us. I mean, and let's face it, some of us Christians can be weird, right? I'm talking about you guys, not myself. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, it's me more so. Uh, Some of us can be difficult to get along with, right? That's particularly myself. We can be a messy bunch of people. It's easy to want to be friends with people who are like us. It's easy to want that kind of community. You know, it's easy movies who like the same around people that like the same hobbies as we do, who like the same movies, who like the same jokes. But all these things are only superficial to who we are. You know, I mean, just think about it. I mean, if, if we just think that, well, I'm really good friends with this person because we both like to play black ops, you know, is that really a substantial part of who you are? You know, is that a substantial? See, this is not the core of what makes life matter. A common mission, a common authority of right and wrong. Much less of what we share in common with Christ being at work in us. And that's why, now this might be a Christian who shares, let me say it, that's why we share more in common with another Christian who shares absolutely different tastes than us than we do with a best friend who shares all the same taste but is not a Christian. See, I'm not saying all this to say we shouldn't have non-Christian friends. As a matter of fact, we should, okay? But this does tell us of our need for Christian community. We all have a need for Christian community. And see, as we show patience with each other, as we bear with one another, 
as we cross social lines and racial lines, socioeconomic lines, to build unity is the beauty of what Christian community can be. And see, the way the world tends to build unity is trying to make everyone like themselves. See, I remember when I was in college, I was in a fraternity house, okay, here at Mizzou, and we were all alike, right? We were all white guys who wore polo shirts and khakis, and we all came from suburbs and small towns. You know, we all, you know, we, we made fun of guys who liked different kinds of music tastes than us. We made fun of people who lived in dorms. Uh, that's what we did in, in our fraternity house, is that we all kind of homogenized each other, right? And, you know, what happened for me is that I began to go to campus ministry meetings on campus. People, I saw this campus ministry meeting. I saw Greek people and the dorm people. I saw different socioeconomic groups. I saw, uh, I saw you know, different racial groups. I saw all different kinds of people all in one room, you know, and it, it was some, and, and what was really particularly powerful for me was that there was this one guy who had, a, you know, a handicap that had speech impediment, and it's guys that my fraternity house probably would have been prone to make fun of and to avoid, but what I saw there is people going out of their way to be nice and include him, and I thought, wow, there's something different, there's something different about this, and that a Christian, what they had to say. And so that was a part of me becoming a Christian. And it's not just fraternities. There's all different kinds of groups. Even some of the most pluralist and open-minded groups on campus can be the ones who are also trying to make everyone think the same way and be the same. But see, this is what God is wanting to create among us. We have a part to play in building this kind of diverse but unified community. Who do we need to do a good job of welcoming? Who is someone that we need to forgive or resolve a conflict with? Who is someone that we need to share a bird community? And so we've got to work at creating this kind of community. But the second point is, is that Paul wants us also. We need community because we also you know, have a part to play in, in growing together that we grow as being a part of a community, and we also help the body to grow. And we see that in verses 11 to 14, when Paul says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the other ways, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's a long sentence. But what Paul's saying here is that we need the body, the church, to grow us. See, the reason why it can't just be me and my Bible off in the woods is that it allows my own vices to remain unchecked. So, for example, if one of our greatest problems is selfishness, I'm sure I'm the only one who struggles with it here. You know, if, 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 if our greatest problem is selfishness, then going out in the woods and being myself isn't necessarily helping me to deal with my selfishness. Church can't be just a... It allows that vice to go unchecked. And the reason why my church can't be just a couple of friends and myself is that we, as friends, tend to share the same blind spots. 
And it robs us of opportunities of being stretched in ways of being a part of a more diverse community where there's different age groups and different, uh, you know, different perspectives and socioeconomic groups all together in one spot. See, the point is of church isn't just to go and be entertained, but it's to be stretched, to be grown. And we grow by serving and by getting involved. And so notice as well that there are different people playing different roles. So the goal isn't just to go to something, the upfront teaching role. So get involved. See, some of the roles that people play are upfront teaching roles. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. These are the ones that we tend to think, these are the ones who are really shaping. These are the ones who are really doing ministry. But in reality, look at what their role is. Their role is to equip the saints, the everyday normal Christian, for the work of ministry. See, everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a part to help the body grow. We're all called to serve. And this requires us to make Christian community a priority in our lives, to be joiners. Now, joining isn't necessarily easy to want a generation. That's not a great strength of Americans in general. But, you know, it's easy to want to keep options open, right? You don't know when something better is going to come along. You know, I remember even... You know, when we did events with Veritas and these kinds of things, you know, you'd be promoting it for a month, the event that's coming up, you'd be announcing it, and it's not until the very last weekend or last night to sign up that the flood of signups come in. You know, you're just left thinking, oh, this event's going to suck, no one's going to come. And then the flood of everyone joins the last minute because, uh, you know, it's just hard to commit, it's hard to join. You know, and, and yet being a joiner matters. I know this might sound strange, but one of the things that I pray for my cleaners, for them, I try to talk to my kids about, is to be joiners, good joiners. For them to make a commitment to be involved in the kind of community that are going to help them grow personally. You see, I've seen too many people who drift away from being involved in Christian community, and I've never seen that to be a time when people are thriving and growing. This idea, American idea, of we can just go off and connect with God on our own, it just doesn't lead to people spiritually thriving. We need community. And when studies and campus activities, work, our own leisure activities begin to keep us from struggle to being involved with other Christians, well, we're setting ourselves up for a spiritual struggle. And it's not just showing up, it's finding ways to serve. And there's all kinds of ways to serve here at Veritas. And there's all kinds of ways to serve at the crossing. You know, there's all kinds of ways to serve because serving helps the body to grow. And that's one of the things that God wants to use us for. This is a part of us being a part of what he has joined us to other people for. And so the third thing that we need, why we need community, is that we need a community of Christians to speak truth in our lives. See, the goal of Christian community isn't just to hang out. The danger sometimes of Christian community is I found my friends, I've made the end. And so making, you know, we can, it can be, well, I found my friends, I've made my friends in my small group, and now I'm done, you know? And that has become the end of our Christian community, just to have friends. You know, and we can think about the, you know, the danger of a youth group, you know, senior high age youth group, is that people begin saying, I, why do I go? Is I go just to have fun playing games and to hang out with my friends. Well, that's not the point. 
You know, even in my 20-somethings ministry or a young professionals group, you can imagine that some people are going to say, you know what I want to do is I want to find my spouse, and that's why I go. Well, that might be a good thing, but it's not the point. It's something more than it's not the point. You see, we need Christian community is something more than friends or a spouse. It is the point of Christian community is that we need the kind of community where we can open up to each other about our lives and have people speak truth that we need to hear into our lives. And that's what Paul says in verses 15 and 16 when he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, when we saw back in verse 14, the reality is all prone to to be carried away by various winds and waves in this world. We're all prone to self-deception, to believe wrong things about ourselves, to believe wrong things about our circumstances, to believe wrong things about other people, to believe wrong things about God. We're all prone to leave double lives, to say we believe one thing but to live out another thing in our lives. We're all prone to push past issues that we need to deal with in our life because it's too much hassle to sit and tap to think about and deal with in our life. And this is why we need not just friends that we can play black ops with, but we need people who decide to our lives. We need, you know, and this is one quick aside, this is why who you marry matters. This is why Christians say you need to marry another Christian. That's why it's so important, because when you get married, all this crap that's in your heart and in your soul is going to come to the surface. And in that moment, you need someone who's going to help you think rightly about that stuff. You need someone who can speak the truth to you in that situation. And that's why it matters. Done with that aside. But here's this, is that we need to be willing to receive that when someone is speaking truth into our lives. We might even need to take the step of inviting that into our lives, of allowing, I might be struggling with a lot by saying, hey, I'm really confused, or hey, I think I might be struggling with this. What do you think about it? Or I'm not sure I'm doing something smart here. You know, we need to be willing to open up about ourselves to other people and allow them to speak into truth, truth into our lives. But this also means that we need to be willing to speak truth into other people's lives. Now, I'm not someone who loves confrontation. I'm not filling out my calendar each week saying, well, who do I get a rebuke this week? You know, that's not what I'm doing. I don't like it, as a matter of fact. Uh, but what compels me sometimes to speak truth into somebody's life is that I love people, or at least I want to love people. Deception. People. And I believe that we all face the danger of self-deception, and we need someone to speak truth into our lives. And sure, I have fears sometimes that I'm going to come across as a self-righteous jerk. I probably have succeeded in that tonight. And there's a way to speak the truth to somebody as a jerk, all right? But the point that Paul says is to speak the truth in love. And what does it mean to speak the truth in love? What does that look like? Well, it means that we don't assume we know why or what's going on in someone's life when we see a problem going on. And so that means we're just asking questions, questions when we're going to speak truth in their life. We're going to, without assumptions, asking questions. 
And when we're trying to point something out, we use phrases like, I wonder if, or it seems to me like. You know, we might say something like, I wonder if you're letting your anger about this situation shape the way you feel about this person. We say, it seems to me like you might be wanting something that God doesn't have for you, right? Speaking the truth in love means we see ourselves as people in need of Jesus who are just trying to help people in need of Jesus. It means we're willing to help them in whatever steps they need to take to change a couple. And so have I had some conversations go south with people? Well, yeah, a couple, you know. But I'm far more surprised at the times that I've spoke truth into people's lives where they feel cared for by me, where it has strengthened my relationship with them, not hurt them. See, I have people speak truth into my life. We all need relationships like this. And so maybe a first step for you is to build a relationship like this where someone can speak truth into your life like this. Maybe there's some struggle we need to open up to someone about. Maybe someone on staff with Veritas or someone in your small group. Or maybe there's someone that we need to lovingly speak the truth into their life. See, Jesus is true because we can't do the Christian life on our own. See, Jesus is uniting us and growing us with other people as a body. See, there would be no... C.S. Lewis, author of the Chronicles of Narnia. There would be no J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the Lord of the Rings, if they didn't have had each other, at least in the way that we know them. Because they were friends, and they had other friends who were Christians, and they called themselves Inklings. They'd get together every week over, uh, over a pint sometimes or over tea other times, and they'd talk about theology and philosophy. They would read their writings towards each other. It's good books that will challenge them. And they began to share this mission together of writing good books that will shape the way that people think. It made them better writers and pushed them to greater accomplishments than they ever would have had on their own. There'd be no William Wilberforce, who was the driving force to stop the slave trade and slavery in England, if he didn't have John Newton telling him to stay a politician after Wilberforce became a Christian. He was thinking, ah, politics don't matter. I'm just going to go be a pastor. But he stayed. Wilberforce needed Hannah Moore. Wilberforce needed other members of the Clapham sect to work together with skills making slave trade in England. And see, all of them with their varied skills making relational connections. Some wrote political pamphlets. Some wrote novels and poems to change the way that people felt about slavery. This was a group project, not just an individual project. There would have been no first great awakening, the Christian revival that swept across America in the colonial period without the Holy Club. Now, don't ever start a Holy Club, horrible name. But they started the Holy Club that met at Oxford, and it was John and Charles Wesley with George Whitfield. And they sharpened each other so that they could come to people who would help awesome to a great awakening here in the United States. See, the goals that are most awesome to accomplish in this world are ones that require a community to do so. See, the mission of what God is doing in the world requires a community. And so we need to stop flirting with Christian community, and we need to work to strengthen and grow it. This is what God is calling us to tonight.
So let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up. Heavenly Father, we just confess that there's so many ways that we do not appreciate the community that you are, we tend to be annoyed with into. Lord, these other Christians that we tend to be annoyed with and frustrated with, people that we tend to talk behind their back about, people that we tend to avoid. Lord, we pray that you might help build in us love, that you might help us welcome well, to speak the truth well, to help each other grow well, so that we might reflect you well in this world. Help us to build the kind of community that is the kind of community that you are building in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.